invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to page 1567. 1567. We are in, this, in a series called The Bride and the Lamb, um, a Christian look at, at human sexuality. And uh, this morning, we'll be looking at the topic specifically of, of same-sex activity. And I want to begin by looking at Mark chapter 8. Again, that's page 1567. Mark chapter 8. We'll begin reading with verse 34 there. Um, There's a lot of content to cover, as you might expect this morning. I'll just let you know right now, we're not going to get to all of it. And I'll also let you know right now, it's still not going to be brief, all right? Try not to make it as long as last time. but you were so gracious last time that I was encouraged to just go really, really long again. Um, no, that's, that's not the case. But you may want to take some notes this morning. You may want to keep your Bibles open. Um, that'll certainly keep you awake. I know the topic is probably going to be boring um, and uninteresting to us. No, I'm just kidding. It's a very important topic um, for the church today, for all of us, not just for some of us. And I appreciate the fact that many of you have been praying over this series, and um, that is so important. And I hope that the love of God um, comes through for his community once again today. Mark chapter 8 is uh, a text in which Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ, And I want to read there from verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what is it that makes a person living in Beloit, Wisconsin, a Packers fan, while people just a few miles away in Rockford, Illinois, are Bears fans? And no, the answer is not that people north of the border are just naturally smarter and more beautiful and all those sorts of things. No, I think the answer actually is story. It's the story of Wisconsin that gives us, those of us who live within Wisconsin's borders, a certain identity. The story of cheese and of beer and of the ice bowl and Reggie White and Brett Favre, those things, that story and these historical markers make people from Beloit feel psychologically much closer to people living in Eagle River than they do to people living right across the border in Illinois. It's our common story. At least that's how things used to work. 
That's less and less the case today. Okay? Today, these traditional identity markers, they, they still function in our lives, but with much less power. The advent of, or with the advent of technology and the internet, history seems less formative than does the present moment. And the people who live next door seem almost less and less real to us than the people on a screen six inches in front of our of our heads. And so to keep with the football analogy here, it's just as easy for me today to be a fan of Devontae Adams as it is for me to be a fan of the Green Bay Packers. And so when he leaves Green Bay for Las Vegas, I can just sort of navigate my allegiances to perhaps the Raiders with all of the other Adams followers on Twitter. And that becomes my new community. See, technology has sort of smoothed the way for me to be a part of the Devontae Adams community now instead of the Green Bay Packers community. And so I identify now as, a, as an Adams fan, not so much as a Packers fan. This is what makes American politics so very contentious today, right? There was a, there was a time when the American story was something that bound us together, really, no matter who we were, no matter what our differences were. The American narrative sort of gave us a deeper sense of identity and community. We celebrate the same holidays, right? Memorial Day and Independence Day and Thanksgiving. This is who we are. We're, we're Americans. But today, today we have Republican and Democratic narratives that give us our identity. We have black and white narratives that give us our identity. We have gay and straight narratives these are now the communities to which we come to belong, and we've lost that sense of a, of a deeper narrative that sort of unites all of us. My question today is, do we still have a deeper narrative that unites all of us as Christians, that crosses borders as Christians? Or have our particular stories, individual stories, so fragmented that all of us, or that all hope for a unified church has sort of been lost? Well, I, I for one, believe that we still do have a unifying narrative, and, and it's contained in, in this book right here. Um. But God didn't just give us this book. He also gave us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would, would guide us into all truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit would guide us from our, our fragmented, short-sighted, individual understandings of this book into a more complete, a fuller understanding of the whole story the whole story that binds us together and without which we have nothing that binds us together. And so our aim this morning as we think about this topic of, of same-sex activity is to think about this, this larger narrative that binds us together. See, friends, there are, there are six 
texts in the Bible that speak directly to the subject of same-sex activity. We're going to look at, at most of those and what they have to say, but our main objective is not to get lost in those texts, but to hold on or at least try to find this deeper narrative that is actually the unifying call of our Savior. Okay? So don't get lost as we begin, because what we're going to begin with is is these different texts that speak about same-sex activity. I don't think there's any way around that. If we are people of the Word and people of this book, we actually need to know what the book says. We're going to do that this morning actually by listening to affirmative arguments or arguments that are actually affirming of same-sex activity or behavior. We're going to weigh those in the light of God's Word. So that's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do, though, is ask ourselves as a church, so is there a place for same-sex believers among us? And is it plausible for those folks to be here? And um, let's, uh, let's dive right into this, friends. Um, first of all, let's look at some of these affirming arguments, and let's begin with the Old Testament right? And there are two texts that we can look at. Uh, The first one, or actually both of them, are in Leviticus. The first one is Leviticus 18.22. The second is 20 verse 13. They're very similar texts. The first one says this, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. Second one says if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, the affirming argument goes something like this. People who affirm same-sex activity basically goes like this, that these texts, when they are speaking in their own time and in their own place, they're simply unaware of the kinds of loving, consensual, monogamous relationships that a gay couple might have today. And because they're so unaware of that, what they are speaking of instead is basically exploitative relationships like rape or temple prostitution or a man forcing himself on a boy or a master forcing himself on a slave. Basically, that's the argument, that these texts speak about relationships where one person is exploiting another person. Now, we can't spend a lot of time on these texts, but I just want to mention a couple of things here. First of all, what we have to note about these texts is that both individuals are mentioned here and both are found guilty. In other words, if Leviticus was only speaking about exploiting or exploitative relationships, it would be natural that the abuser or the exploiter would be the one who is condemned here. But that's not the case. Both of the partners in the activity are spoken against. And therefore, what we understand is that Leviticus is speaking more generally, not just about exploitative relationships, but about same-sex relationships in general. 
The second thing I, I think we need to note here is, is something um, we often hear from the affirming community, and that is that Leviticus is really simply speaking about cultic prostitution, cultic practices that took place in the temples of the surrounding, um, the surrounding Gentile community. And I just need to, to add here that actually <clears throat> um, um, study today and scholarship today has shown that that idea of cultic temple prostitution and myths at this particular time in history um, was more of a myth than a reality. So there's more proof that those kinds of things were not actually going on, and certainly not in Israel, than that they were. And so again, these texts seem to be speaking generally about same-sex activity um, in general. Second affirming argument <clears throat> we need to address, which often comes up and is, is a good argument, is that Jesus, Jesus himself didn't say anything specifically about same-sex activity, and therefore he must have been okay with it. Okay? Now, this is what's known as an argument from silence. Jesus didn't say anything about the issue, and so it must have been okay. There are a few things we need to consider about that, however. Okay, the first is context, is context. Um, we have to understand that Jesus was not living in a vacuum, all right? Jesus was a Jewish rabbi or a teacher living in a Jewish context, the context of his religion, Judaism, and everything within Judaism denounced same-sex activity, okay? And therefore, what it becomes pertinent is the fact that Jesus actually never spoke a word to say that he disagreed with the teachings of Judaism on this point. And if you think about it, that would have been out of character for Jesus because he wasn't shy about denouncing his own religion and his own religious leaders in many, many different areas where they had wandered from the point of Scripture. Issues like divorce and holiness and anger and adultery and care for the poor and the widows and the orphans. In fact, over and over again in the Gospels, we hear Jesus say, you have heard it said right? You have heard it said, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, and then he would offer his corrective. He never offers any corrective on the tradition of uh, the matter of same-sex sexual activity. <clears throat> Another thing we need to consider here is that Jesus never addresses other sexual sins either. Things such as prostitution, or incest, or pederasty, or bestiality, or rape. And if he didn't mention all those other things, we still don't say, well, those things must have been okay then. Jesus must have been fine with those things. So why would we say that about same-sex activity? The truth is that Jesus' silence agrees more dramatically um, or speaks more dramatically to his agreement with the Old Testament texts like those found in Leviticus and his understanding of the Judaism of which he was a part at that time. 
Third, we can't forget the things that Jesus did actually say. Okay, don't forget the things Jesus did say. For instance, in Mark 7, Jesus lists several things that defile a person. At the head of the list is sexual immorality. Okay, at least that's how the NIV translates it. In the Greek, the word there that's used is actually plural, sexual immoralities. Okay? And it seems as if Jesus here has in mind not just one kind of sexual immorality, but a list. And what he probably had in mind were the lists that we find in the Old Testament of sexual immoralities, like those found in the Leviticus texts we just referred to. If you go through those lists, you find not just one kind of sexual immorality and not just same-sex kinds of issues, but all sorts of sexual immoralities. This is what Jesus says defiles a person. Another thing that Jesus did actually say, we referred to a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was asked about the issue of divorce. And what he does is he quotes there the creation story, and he says, have you not read at the beginning that the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? Now think about that. Jesus was speaking to the issue of divorce here, okay? But if he simply wanted to say don't get divorced, he could have simply referred to the text from Genesis 2. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus doesn't just speak from Genesis 2. In this text, he actually combines a verse from Genesis 1 with verses from Genesis 2. In other words, Jesus adds this little bit from Genesis 1 about he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. In other words, Jesus gets very specific in saying that marriage okay, is about a male and a female being joined together. Male and femaleness is, is essential for marriage. Those are three things. Now, the final thing we need to think about this Jesus argument is this. <clears throat> Even if Jesus didn't say anything at all specifically about this issue, that would not negate what the Bible says everywhere else. And this is where I think we get thrown off by the red-letter Bible, all right? Um, I was here for the BCS graduation Friday night, and all the graduates got a Bible. I wanted to run up and look and see if they were red-letter Bibles. Some parents will have to tell me that, okay? Red-letter Bibles, they look really cool, but, and if you don't know what they are, they have all the words of Jesus himself in red letters compared to the black print of everything else. But what that does is it makes the words of Jesus seem elevated above the rest of of Scripture. And that's simply not the case. That's not what we believe about the Bible. We believe that the whole Bible in its entirety is the inspired Word of God, right? There's not some parts that are, are more God's Word than other parts. Even Jesus' words are not more God's words than other parts. In fact, if you study how the Bible was put together, it was the apostles themselves who had to hear Jesus' words and then move them to be in Holy Scripture, 
all right? So we can't say that, that Jesus' words are more important than Paul's words on the topic, or because Jesus didn't say anything, that's more important than what Paul says or what the Old Testament says. It's just, it's just not how we look at the Word of God. Now, <clears throat> the third affirming argument has to do with two New Testament texts. So we're, we're moving right into the New Testament here. Um, these texts are 1 Corinthians 6, all right, 9 to 11, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 10 and following. I'm just going to refer to 1 Corinthians 6 here because the texts are quite similar. I'll, I'll read just a couple of verses here. Or do you not know, this is what Paul writes, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, friends, we don't have time for this this morning. There is so much that we could say about this text. Um, one of the first and foremost is we have to understand Paul here is making a list of sins, and every one of us is on this list, okay? Every one of us is in this list. In other words, Paul isn't saying that same-sex activity is far worse than any other sin that we commit, all right? All of our sins are bad. They take us and separate us from our God and separate us from one another. But because of the topic, we have to focus on this one phrase that says, men who have sex with men. This is what the debate um, surrounds today. What that phrase does is it actually translates two Greek uh, words that Paul uses here, the words malakoi, and then one I struggled to say, arsenokoitai. Um, and I don't want to get too technical here, and this is where I said things can get kind of boring. Um, so suffice it to say that the affirming view says a couple of things. It says that these words are either too... Um, we, we, we just don't understand really what they are or what they are saying. Or it's very similar to what we said about the text from Leviticus that these Greek words refer too narrowly or very narrowly to abusive sorts of same-sex activity. Namely, again, man-boy sex, um, slave sex, prostitution, that sort of thing. And that's particularly what Paul is speaking out against. The problem with that affirming argument is that there were specific Greek words for those kinds of exploitative activities. And so the question would be, why didn't Paul just use those other words? And what you have to understand here is that Paul was a man of the world. He was a scholar. He was familiar with the Greek world at this time. There were other words that were prevalent in his language that would have referred specifically to these other kinds of activities. It would have been very easy for Paul to specify those activities if that's what he meant. And so the important thing to grasp here is, again, it seems as if Paul is speaking in terms of Leviticus and very generally saying same-sex activities are, are, not, um, are not to be practiced. 
Okay, uh, there's more we could say about that, um, but I'm going to move on to Romans 1. And before we talk about this particular text, I just want to remind us what Romans 1 and 2 are about and what's going on here. This text has often been used, friends, as a club. It's often been used by Christians who are in the sexual majority as a club to beat over the head Christian sexual minorities and tell them how evil they are. That is so far from what Paul intends to do here. Um, Paul, when he speaks about same-sex activity in this text, it's not his main point to just talk about how bad these things are. If you're going to understand Romans 1 and 2, you have to go back to chapter 1, verse 16, where he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. What Paul is touting here is the power of the gospel to save, to bring us a righteousness from above that displaces any kind of righteousness that we try to build on our own. And so what Paul is doing here is he is making the case that all of us need this righteousness from God that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 1, he shows how this is true for the Greeks. That the life that we have built as Gentiles, and, and this is the group that we're included in, friends, the life that we build on our own is not a righteous life before God. And we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes through faith. And then he turns to the Jews in chapter 2 and he says, and you know what? Your righteousness is no better. Because your righteousness basically amounts to this. You look at all the Gentiles and you say, well, we're better than you folks. And Paul says, that's not a righteousness that's going to cut it with God either. His point is that Jews and Gentiles together are sinners. They're broken. We cannot save ourselves. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from above. Now, within that context, Paul does speak about same-sex activity. This is what we have to read, all right? Um, chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, and this is where we get into the text, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. I'm just going to stop there because that's all we have time for, for one, but this is the heart of the affirming argument. It's that 
It's that one word or two words in Greek, but it's unnatural or against nature, okay? So the text says that women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, for relations that go against nature. Now, what the affirming argument um, states here, and I think it's, it's understandable and it's a pretty good argument, in fact, it's the argument that what Paul is saying here is that he's speaking about our sexual nature, or in other words, you could say our sexual orientation, okay, or to whom we're attracted. And what he's saying is, look, there are people who are oriented toward the opposite sex, right? And so if a male is oriented toward a female, okay, it would be a sin then to go against their sexual orientation and to hook up with another male. Where we go from there, though, is this, okay? So if I am oriented toward the same sex, so if I am a male, okay, who is attracted to fellow males, the sin then would be for me, who's attracted to the same sex, to go against my natural orientation and, and try to hook up with a female, someone of the opposite sex, okay? So the sin in this argument is someone who goes against their natural orientation, okay, to long after somebody who is not their natural attraction. Does that make sense? Okay, um, I said it's a good argument. However, it doesn't stand up when you put it in the context, when you really look at the context of the text. The context of the text, friends, is all about creation. All right? And so what Paul is talking about when he says going against nature, he's not talking about going against our sexual nature or our sexual orientation. He's talking about going against our created nature, our created nature. What Paul is saying is that God formed males for females, females for males, to go against that nature, that creation order is what God does not want us to do. Now, is there evidence for this? <clears throat> the evidence for this understanding of natural is really overwhelming if you think about it. Paul continues to allude to Genesis 1 and 2 in this text. In Romans 1.25, he refers to the Creator. In Romans 1.20, he says God has been revealing himself since the creation of the world. In 1.23, he uses five of the same Greek words that you find in the creation story. In 1.26, mankind, image, likeness, birds, reptiles. Um, he also specifically speaks in terms of males and females, okay? which are a pair of words that we find for the very first time in Genesis 1.27. He created them in his image, male and female. He created them. I could go on, but there's just so much evidence here that, that Paul is really talking about the creator and the creation order. He's not talking about our sexual natures, okay? Now, <clears throat> like I said, I can't do justice to these, these texts 
about same-sex activity in just the time that we have. And we still need to get to this question about, so, what do we do with same-sex believers? Do they have a place in the church? And I think the question is even narrower than that. Do they have a place in our church? This is a question that we have to ask. And, and from the perspective of same-sex believers, it has, it's a question that has to do with plausibility. Okay? It's a question that has to do with plausibility. And that is, is it plausible? If this is the way that we interpret these texts, is it plausible for me to live a Christ-like life? This is where, friends, I think we have to get back to our main narrative, the deeper narrative that binds all of us together. And that's a narrative that we read from Mark chapter 8. Our same-sex-oriented brothers and sisters in this room this morning are feeling the weight of Mark 8 deep in their bones. Deep in their bones. They are feeling Jesus' call to pick up their crosses if they are going to follow Jesus. It's very clear to them. Because if the texts are saying what I said that they're saying then that means for our same-sex brothers and sisters in Christ, they are being called to a life of what? Of singleness? Of celibacy? They are being called to pick up their cross and not act on their sexuality in this life. They feel the weight of what it means to pick up the cross and follow Christ. And so what we have to ask within this body, this is a question for all of us, is do we all feel that call? Do we all feel that weight? You see, it's one thing for people in the majority to say, yeah, you know, this is what Christ is calling you to, and you need to pick up your cross and follow But it's also very easy for us in the majority to say, oh, but I'm not going to bother doing that. See, this is where the question of plausibility comes in. Is it plausible for same-sex believers to actually live the kind of life that Christ calls them to? <clears throat> I think it is. But... Something has to change in the church. And that is, all of us have to learn to pick up our crosses. You see, friends, if every time the Holy Spirit blows a new challenge in our direction, if every time you hear God's call to stretch, to get out of your comfort zone, to do something you know is going to be hard, to give up something that you really, really love, even for the promise of something that's more lovely? If every time we hear the promptings of the Holy Spirit, we also hear ourselves reject those promptings and turn away, 
and take an easier path, then we create an atmosphere in the church where same-sex Christians are going to ask, you know, if no one else is willing to suffer for Christ, then why would I? Then why would I? And it's a fair question. On the other hand, if we grow adept, more and more adept, at obeying the promptings of the Holy Spirit, if he comes to us and says, I'm calling you to this, and we jump, no matter what the cost, if we create an atmosphere like that, we create an atmosphere in the church where same-sex believers say, why wouldn't I follow Christ? Why wouldn't I do this for Christ? Why wouldn't I take the hard road for Christ? This is just what Christians do. This is what Christians do. And friends, this is what gives me hope. Because I think we have a community here that is ready to follow Jesus. I think Jesus is here. I think his Holy Spirit is active. When I, see, when I see young families opening up their homes to children who are essentially strangers to them, I see people picking up their crosses. And when I see parents teaching their children that, that being a Christian often means distinguishing between good things and greater things. And parents teaching children that, hey, you may not be able to be involved in everything that your friends are involved in because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When I see those kinds of things happening, I see people picking up their crosses. And when couples come to my office and they tell me how hard marriage has become for them, but then they recommit themselves to learn how to love each other again, I see people picking up their crosses. And when I see a people, a community of people picking up their crosses for Jesus Christ, then I have hope that we can be the kind of community where same-sex believers feel safe and feel welcome. And not just welcome, but feel like this is a place that they belong that this is their community, and they're with people like them, willing to take up the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, I think it's a blessing from the Holy Spirit that, that the church has to deal with this subject today because there is so much that, same, that the same-sex community of believers has to teach us as a church We've got to learn to go back to Jesus in everything. Everything. This is the kind of community we need to be. Community who will help each other. Community who won't just say, you know, you've, boy, you've got it tough, I'll pray for you. But a community who will actually say, you know, um, I'm not just praying for you. We're going to see Top Gun Saturday night, and I want you to come with us. 
And then we'd be delighted if you would sit in church with us on Sunday morning. And, and we would be delighted if actually you would spend more time with our children because they seem to believe that Christian community these days is optional or it's unnecessary. And I want them to value the Christian community as much as you value it. That's the kind of community that we need to be. Friends, this isn't a question today, really, of how to interpret six short biblical texts. It's a question of how to interpret the very core of what the Bible teaches us, and that is to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be married to a sacrificial farm animal? Because that's the story of Scripture. That's the story of God's people. It's a life that's peculiar. It's a life that's odd. It's a life that's different. It's a life that's looked down upon by the world and laughed at by the world. Is that who we are? We are the bride of the lamb, the slain lamb. We are the bride of someone who is so bound to us in love that he bears our scars upon his own body and he bears those scars forever. He will carry them forever so that we do not have to. Friends, our scars will be healed one day. All of the brokenness of this creation will be redeemed. That's what his scars tell us. Until then, Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and follow, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to heed what he says, to not turn our backs and go a different way. If that's the life the Bible is calling same-sex Christians to, and it is, then that's the life the Bible is calling all Christians to. The answer, friends, is not to cancel out Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6. The answer is to hear Mark 8 all over again. Pick up your cross and follow me. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord God, we need your forgiveness. Not just forgiveness of the sins that others make us aware of, but the sins we carry in our own hearts and souls. Sins uh, as a church community where we've often felt people who are same-sex attracted, made them feel unwelcome, different, unique. And Lord, we have failed to learn from them that all of us are broken, that all of us need a Savior, and that all of our lives can testify to the greatness of our Savior, the redeeming of our Savior, 
the washing of our Savior, the making us new. Lord Jesus, teach us how to love like you loved. Teach us about your cross. And help us to hear your call again to pick up our own crosses and to come after you as your disciples. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.